the kind of work I do now, I really do trace uh, in large part to the experiences I had as a teenager in Rudy Giuliani's New York, you know, growing up uh, a brown kid at a time when the NYPD basically, I mean, they still do, but really had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted in furtherance of getting the crime rate down. And that really uh, affected how they uh, treated black and brown young kids, especially young boys. And we didn't have stop and frisk as a term back then, but that's what they were doing, sort of, um, you know, putting us against the wall on subway stops or on the street, just emptying out our duffel bags or searching our backpacks without cause. And it made me so angry, you know, and when you're, a, when a lot of guys are young teenagers are sort of angry anyway, right? Trying to find your way. And so uh, once I sort of got past that like uh, juvenile initial response, I was like, okay, well, what can I do about this? Hello, dear friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, founder of Let's Give a Damn and host of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And thank you most of all for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, my guest this week is the absolutely incredible Janos Martin. Janos was born to immigrant parents and raised in New York City. As a brown kid growing up in New York City during the stop and frisk years, he decided that he would speak up and do something about the injustices he saw around him each and every day. Janos is a civil rights lawyer, a criminal justice reformer, and an activist that at this point has spent most of his life speaking out against powerful and harmful people and structures. As an attorney, Janos has investigated police misconduct in the city of New York, and a few years ago, he was named the first advocacy director of Just Leadership USA, and he managed the historic Close Rikers campaign. And last but definitely not least, Janos is the national director of Dream Core Justice, an incredible organization that closes prison doors and opens doors of opportunity. They bring people together across racial, social, and partisan lines to create a future with freedom and dignity for everyone. Dream Corps, which is technically three organizations in one, Dream Corps Justice, Dream Corps Green for All, and Dream Corps Tech, was founded by CNN host, political commentator, Emmy Award-winning producer, New York Times bestselling author, and social entrepreneur Van Jones. I really like Van Jones, and I really love this organization, Dream Corps. I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation, friends, and I learned so much from Janos. I trust you'll learn a lot from him as well. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime and for any reason to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with damn giver extraordinaire, Janos Martin. Let's go. Janos, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, usually I start with, let's get into your story and introductions. But before we do that, some real shitty things happened last weekend. And because of the line of work that you're in... I, I would be remiss if I didn't start with asking you just your thoughts on what happened in Buffalo. I mean, obviously, we live in the U.S., so there are, you know, five, ten mass shootings of all kinds every single week, right? 
But this was a big one. It was obviously also close to home. You know, Buffalo's like a few hours from here in uh, up upstate New York. So, yeah, being in the line of work that you're in, um, what are your initial thoughts? Uh, I mean, I'm sure I could guess what they are, but like horrific thing happened because of the our laws and because of the way that we function as a country or rather don't function. Yeah, uh, it was a very heavy day at work for sure. Uh, you know, as someone who works in the criminal justice space, our work is often pretty heavy and we have to maintain a sense of positivity and optimism, even though we deal with very uh, serious and intense subjects. Um, but I will tell you, you know, my first uh, conversation that day was with my organizing director, who's black organizer from Milwaukee, who just reminded me that, especially for black people in the criminal justice space, there's that extra weight that they carry yeah. in, in moments like that. And, you know, we we tried to do our best to reach out to staff that day to, to communicate that you know, people need to take time for their own mental health. They should. Um, but it's obviously a very jarring uh very jarring that it happened in New York State because, like you said, you know, there's we all know people in Buffalo, um, and it's just horrific that this level of vile racism can exist and and come out of you know basically the Buffalo suburbs, right? Um, this is not you know isolated to some region of the country. This is a infection that's spreading uh, across uh, the United States, and that's pretty scary. It's especially scary in light of other things that are happening in our country, like, for example, the banning of books that teach our children about these things. Uh, not critical race theory, books that educate them about the history of our country, where we've come from, where we, the things we need to change, where we need to go. It, it's, it's kind of wild that both of these things coexist, the banning of books it, this sounds like something out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And also race, like clear, crystal clear, white supremacist, racially motivated mass shootings happening. Uh, I mean, he, he, he chose the time of day based on the Google, you know, schedule thing. When you pull up a business, it tells you mm. when it's the most busy. He chose that time of day. He knew it'd be the busiest. We all saw the video, horrific video where he was about to shoot a white person and said, oh, I'm sorry and then kept looking for black people. Like, it's really discouraging. And, and, and yes, you and I both, in very different ways, we work in sectors where people are looking to us for, yes, the truth, and yes, for realness, but hope. They're, they're mm -hmm. hoping to find hope here. And I find it really hard to be hopeful in weeks like this. Because you, I mean, in the, in the kids' manifesto, he calls out, you know, the great, the very false replacement theory that is thrown around all the time by the likes of Tucker Carlson and otherwise. And, and then you, those same people get on TV and I try to distance themselves from that. Like, it's just a, it feels very weird that we just don't like, this is something that we could solve. We could solve this. Other countries have solved this. They don't have these kinds of things. And yet we just, I mean, it's more news will happen. We'll just move on until the next mass shooting. Yeah, look, we live in dark times overall, right? Uh, this is uh, a time of great upheaval. A lot of people are scared about the economy. This war in Ukraine is not only, you know, throwing a lot of people off for what's happening there, but obviously there's risk of nuclear war. So it's, it's, it's a crazy time. And um, the fact that gun sales set records during the pandemic and you have people who are clearly, uh, I mean, this guy was clearly a racist who was going after people um, in a very 
ugly and, and yeah. strategic way. But you know, a lot of the mass shootings, there's an underlying issue of, of of mental illness that like is going unchecked and unsupported in this country. So it is dark times that we're living in. Um, and this question of hope, uh, I think about it a lot because I go through ebbs and flows where I kind of lose it. Yeah, for, I get uh, it. And and for me, you know what. The only thing that really can get me out of it, other than the support of people like my partner or close friends, is just reminding myself that to be hopeful is a choice. Mm. And uh, there's really, you know, what are the two choices, to wallow in it or to be hopeful, right? And and for me, at least, uh, both in my personal life, but, you know, in my professional life, running Dream Corps Justice and previous campaigns and programs, uh, you get a lot you get a lot more done when you're hopeful and you spread that energy than when you just wallow in the dark which we all you know there's enough to go around where you could just be doing that all the time but being hopeful is a choice yeah that that's a fantastic point in in, in a second we'll pivot to your introduction because i don't want to go back into some mm-hmm. like dark shit because what you just said is very very clear and also super helpful that it is a choice when i look back at when we all look back at the people that we admire people that had a huge, massive impact, whether it's the James Baldwin's or in James, James had his moments, right? Uh, there are books full of just critiques and in, in that didn't seem very hopeful, but overall the, the, uh, Dr. King's and the James Baldwin's and the Maya Angelou's and the bell hooks and the, these, these folks that we look back on and learn from, they are, they are remembered decade after decade because of their hope. The people that despaired all the time, you don't remember. I mean, we could name some, but we don't look up to them. Mm-hmm. It's the people that, and everybody that is, I, I just mentioned, they're part of a very marginalized, persecuted people group, right? The four that I just mentioned, I could mention many others. But um, yeah, hope is a choice. And I hope that, I hope that because of the line of work you're in, I hope that that, that idea of hope is a choice weaves its way through our conversation today because you you all work on very heavy hard things that if you don't have hope you're not lasting a year in that in that job right because i'm mm-hmm. sure it's very very dark and you don't see the progress as quickly as you would hope yeah you know the i've been working now on on criminal justice as an advocate the the sort of campaign director strategist for about 8 years now before that i was a lawyer before that i was an organizer and I remember I was early into running these uh, the Close Rikers campaign, which was the first large-scale criminal justice campaign that I ran and was having lunch with uh, a, a colleague in the organization, somebody who did 26 years in Michigan prison. And we were dealing with some, some BS. It was like a partner group was driving us crazy in the coalition, you mm. know, the kind of petty nonsense that yep. permeates nonprofit space. And, you know, I, and I said, this doesn't seem to be bothering you <laughs> as much as it's bothering me. And he said, well, listen, Janos, I always say, my, my worst day on the outside is better than my best day on the inside. And, you know, for him, 26 years in Michigan prisons coming home, yeah, he's had some things that are very frustrating, but compared to what he went through, um, there, you know, it's, it's a contrast. And so that's always been helpful framing for me, you know, as somebody who's, yeah, I've had setbacks, I've had dings, right? But I never did 26 years in prison. And so uh, especially in this line of work where you think about what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to get people right. out of prison, prevent people from going into prison, change prison conditions. Um, the most marginalized people are having, you know, it's a different scale of what they're going through. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have a lot of privileges, both in like the comfort we have, but also the opportunity we have to make changes. So these are all the positive things that I try to dig me out when I'm in that abyss. Yeah. It's all about perspective, right? Yeah. Because we are, so, I mean, 
even in the midst of what we're going through in this country, we are still miles and miles and miles ahead of so many other people. You know, most most of the undeveloped world still has not even had a chance to get one vaccine if we're talking about just the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had the chance. I'm going uh, next week for my second booster. As the numbers go up, I just, I need to do that. I'm also immunocompromised. And so, like, I have the choice. And I can walk in almost anywhere and they're going to have them because not many people are getting vaccines right now. So, like, they're literally sitting in refrigerators waiting for people to come. And most of the undeveloped world hasn't even had a chance to get their first one yet, right? Mm -hmm. That's one little thing. And then you go out from there. It it really is a matter of uh, perspective. Let's get some framing before we get into the work that you've done. You already mentioned a few things that we'll get into those particulars here in a moment. But I always love to go back in the story, figure out where you came from, who shaped you, what shaped you, because we usually get a peek into, by telling that story, we usually get a peek into why you're doing what you're doing today. So you're a native New Yorker. Sure. Right? Yeah. It's something that I wish that I, I well, I'm from, I, I actually was born in upstate New York, but lived overseas for much of my life and have been all around and now back here, um, hoping to be here for a long, long time. But you're native New Yorker, uh, Upper West Side, born and raised, right? That's right. 100th Street, born and raised. Yeah, you know, my I was the first bo- in my family born in the United States. My uh, mother was an immigrant from Hungary. My father was an immigrant from India. Um, only in New York City where would the, that combination meet. Seriously. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, lived here till I went away for college, and then basically have been here more more or less since. With you know different uh, pockets of time, you know, working on a campaign or something like that in another state or another country. Um, and I guess I was always like a pretty activist kid, you know, I mean, I remember just like doing petitions for the manatees when I was like six, you know, that was always sort of my, my, in my blood, but the kind of work I do now, I really do trace, uh, in large part to the experiences I had as a teenager in Rudy Giuliani's New York, you know, growing up, uh, a Brown kid at a time when the NYPD basically, I mean, they still do, but really had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted in furtherance of getting the crime rate down. And that really, uh, affected how they uh, treated black and brown young kids, especially young boys. And we didn't have stop and frisk as a term back then, but that's what they were doing, sort of, um, you know, putting us against the wall on subway stops or on the street, just emptying out our duffel bags or searching our backpacks without cause. And it made me so angry, you know, and when you're, when a lot of guys are young teenagers are sort of angry anyway, right? Trying to find your way. And so uh, once I sort of got past that, like uh, juvenile initial response, I was like, okay, well, what can I do about this? And so when I went to college, I was like, I want to find out, you know, the history of social justice movements. I want to sign up for all the clubs. And, uh, that began me on a sort of long journey to where I am now. Do you remember the first time that you were stopped and frisked? Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think which the order of them in my head, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it sucks that you even have to try to order <laughs> them in your head. But yeah, I mean, I can think of the the most uh, you know, or yeah, of, what's the most yeah, jarring one? The most jarring one was because of the context of it. Um, you know, I, I would say because I was on my way. You know, I, I senior senior fall of high school, I'd started. Uh, I visited a couple of colleges, trying to think like where I would apply, and I had just visited uh, Dartmouth, which is where I ended up going um, at the time. But you know, I took a bus home. Uh, at the Port Authority bus terminal, I swipe my student Metro card, which, um, you know, gives actually emits a different color on the machine. I don't know if people realize that, but so what that meant is these two plainclothes officers came up to me. Um, I was carrying a little duffel bag because I'd come from, you know, this trip and they grabbed me, threw me against the wall, asked me where I stole the student Metro card from. 
and started like throwing stuff out of my duffel bag. And, you know, it was just clothes and stuff. But what was particularly terrible about that experience or jarring about it is like, one, it's a very public place. All these people are staring at me, probably assuming I did something wrong, right? Um, second of all, I'm by myself. Like a couple of times it happened with friends around or like it happened to all of us. So, you know, at least there's- You have like, that camaraderie. Yeah, exactly. Take care of each we other. can like talk, you can, you know, talk afterwards. But, and this time, you know, I was just like, I was solo, like I actually couldn't, didn't have my student ID like easily on me to prove it was my Metro card. So like that was stressful, uh, you know, and so- in the end, you know, they they found my student ID buried in my bag, and then they're just like, all right, and they just like left, and like there I was with my stuff on the ground, I had to clean it up, and you know, that's the kind of thing that I still get angry thinking about that moment today, and I, it still happens today, right? There isn't, a, a, I think, a black or brown young man who came up between like 1990 and yesterday that hasn't experienced that at least once, I'm thinking, you know? And that sucks. Because we, I, I feel like New York City is this, it's f maybe more than most places, it's full of, it's full of contradictions, right? This is a mm -hmm. city that makes so much for the world, creates so much for the world. People see it as, if you go ask anybody in the Mid-South to identify New York City with a political party or political leanings or social view leanings, they're going to say super left, like way left. And I think that's true for some of the people here. But then you, but then we're in this city that has just an astronomical billion dollar police budget, 37,000, <laughs> multiple billion dollar, 37,000 cops. Most of them doing nothing. There are too many, right? There's just, there's just too many. So they're just roaming around all day. And I would guess that a lot of those things, yes, they came out of, we're trying to eliminate, you know, crime and all that. But a lot of it was probably just like, we're bored. We got to, we're looking for things to, I, I literally the other day saw it, it as a New Yorker, and I'm a, I'm a new New Yorker, mm -hmm. but you just don't even know what to do because one moment you'll see them, you know, uh, ticket or worse, you know, a, a young kid that jumps the turnstile down in the in the subway, and then the next moment you will see a cop open the door, the emergency door for like six people to walk through, mm -hmm. and they don't have to pay. So what the fuck? What do we do? How do we live in this environment where there are so many roaming around? And and again, I'm sure it was. There are more eyes on it now, right? I think the even though it's still bad, the internet and camera phones and all that has, I'm sure the numbers have come down a lot. So I can't imagine how I feel walking around every day. I live two blocks from a police station where in Harlem where, I mean, the cop, the cars just park everywhere. They double park. They, they literally every day take up a whole lane, an extra lane of the actual road because they don't park correctly. Like I see all these things. So I'm like, I spend a lot of my days just walking around sort of like low-key, low like fuming, just watching either bad stuff happening or nothing happening. And our tax dollars are, you know, going toward cops not doing anything. I can imagine that back then when there weren't cell phones, when there weren't cameras and, and, and people weren't filming that. Because today, if that happened to you, they, you know, rip your backpack off, start emptying, oh, there'd be 40 cameras out. And, sure. and, and maybe you would have been a news story tonight 
because look at what they're doing to this brown kid in the subway. But not back then it was like, ah, oh, just another another day. Right. I mean, you raised a lot of interesting stuff there. One one thing about the why is, you know, how we measure success for police officers, right? Which is numbers driven and quota driven, right? So uh, the number of tickets you give out, the number of arrests you make is the primary uh, way in which the police uh, evaluate themselves. And, you know, one in my career, you know, I've had the opportunity to be at the CCRB, the Police Oversight Board uh, for New York City as policy counsel. So I really got to dig deep into the numbers. And, you know, you'd come across these police officers with you know, 50 complaints um, over, racked up over many years. And the police's argument as to why that person was still on the force is like, well, they're doing the kind of active policing that we that we want, right? And so, you know, they're like, the only people who get complaints are the police who do real work, right? And so they're very unself-aware or unself-critical about this dynamic. Uh, and I think that's an impasse that we, you know, have made no progress in getting through over the years. I think where the conversation might be a little bit more uh, fruitful in the long term is I think there's some consensus now in at least the political discourse that police have been tasked with doing a number of things that they're not qualified for and frankly don't really want to do. Yeah. And, you know, we start, we talked about mental health a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, the number of times police are sent in response to mental health calls when, you know, they have no real training in that area. And, you know, uniform people showing up with guns and batons is not going to make a situation better most of the time. Calmer, when someone's yeah. Going through a mental health crisis. And so there are now other, there are cities around the country um, that are starting to pilot. Well, what if we sent somebody else who was trained in a different kind of way to those situations? In New York, um, there's been a little bit of experimentation around outreach to people experiencing homelessness, right? Having a social worker go with a police officer in certain cases so that they can offer the services first. So it's not, you know, get out of this corner, you'll be arrested dynamic, right? So I think you know, in the long run where we need to get to is, you know, a, a police force that's uh, actually solving difficult crimes and having uh, people who are better equipped and trained from other agencies responding to the kind of day-to-day difficulties that a city like ours is always going to have. That's very helpful. One thing I'm excited about this conversation is I don't hold the positions you hold, right? In, in certain organizations that I, that I love and support, you know, I can kind of, and this is a, a blessing and a curse, a good and a bad thing. Like I can kind of just go off, right. And, and get more upset. And so I think we would uh, care about a lot of the same stuff. And so one thing I already know I'm going to appreciate about this conversation is the more like measured approach at some of this stuff, right? Because I, I need that. Like, I know that my way, the, the way that I feel as I'm walking around, maybe even some of the solutions that I, uh, uh, support might not be the, the right way because we don't live, you know, a lot of this, you know, a lot of the scenarios that I paint about what we could do and what we should do they're just not going to happen. Right. Or, or we're looking at 30, 40 years down the road. And so I always appreciate, and I'm, I'm excited to learn more from you because I need to, especially if I'm going to make it here, I think in the long term, like how do you make it as someone who, uh, you know, uh, is advocating for the abolition of certain structures in our, in our society and cares so deeply and has kind of an unbridled, you know, uh, uh, fury about some of these things that again, should not be, I need to learn how to just dial it, you know, dial it back because you, you do get more, you know, you can, or it's all about directing it. Right. Like, uh, like Joe Strummer says, you know, let fury have the hour. Anger can be power. Right. Like it's, mm. it, there's okay to be angry. And, you know, when we think about Buffalo and we think about, 
you know, the day-to-day indignities that young black people experience in New York City, like we should always stay angry about that. And I think one thing that in, in my own sort of trajectory from, you know, angry teenager to, I don't know, you said measured, hopefully, maybe more measured, you know, person approaching 40 is just like figuring out how do we channel that anger, you know, unleash it the right, you know, at times for the maximum effectiveness. Because there's a lot of ways to be angry that and ineffective. And, you know, I've, I go to a lot fewer marches than I used to. Uh, it's important that the marches happen. For some people, it's very cathartic. For me, you know, that was, you know, I found myself being angry in unconstructive ways in those environments. And so now I try to channel it into, okay, well, how can I, how can I use that anger to, to, to figure out different strategies for, for getting stuff done? I like that. Before we move into some of the work that you've done, one more thing on just your growing up and your childhood and all that. Mm-hmm. I guess the question that I want to kind of dig into is, you know, as a result of experiencing some of the things you've experienced and seeing some of the things that you that, that saw growing up, you decided, hey, I want to, I want to do something about it. But I would assume that most of your friends, others that got stopped and frisked, others that got abused and, and, and saw a lot of the abuses happening, they went on to do just normal jobs, right? Like, and those are mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. But they're now working in this tech company or this corporate thing or whatever. And it seems like you took a different path. And if there's nothing here, we can move on. But is like, what was it about? Was it your parents? Was it other other influences you had in your life? Like, what made you if you could even figure it out and, or articulate it, what made you say, I'm going to do something about this versus, oh, that was really shitty, but I've got a life to live. Hopefully it won't happen again. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's, I like that you framed it in the context of like, I'm, I'm like picturing my friends who were there for it. And you're right. A lot of them did go on to work in, in, in corporate settings. And of course, like I hung out with a lot of like first gen kids, right? Where it's, you know, the goal is, a, by the family, the family's goal is for you to make it in the conventional yeah. American way. But also, uh, there's uh, motivation for you yourself to, you know, make a make a good living, be able to help out your family, to, you know, have made it as an American, to be fully validated in that way. So I totally, you know, don't, I, I think it's totally cool whatever all of my friends growing up wound up doing as long as they're happy doing it. Um, and for me too, I had moments where I flirted with that lifestyle. When I graduated law school, um, you know, I did corporate law for two years thinking, well, you know, this is, I could, you know, pay off my loans and then, you know, help out causes and then do pro bono work. And it just became like, it was so quickly obvious that that was not going to be a good fit because, <laughs> um, you know, I guess my, my personality has always been pretty anti-establishment. And so I was never going to fit in into structures that were going to, um, require me to, you know, yeah. follow those paths. So I think that's partly it. I mean, there's like always been like, a rebellious nature to things I've done. So, um, you know, disrupting this terrible system is like a good way to constructively be rebellious, I guess. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I'm, I'm locking arms with you to do so because I, I, to me, it's the, again, we're, we're in different lines of work, but we're advocating for a lot of the same things. Like to me, no judgment on anybody else, but I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing not telling the stories, not starting the projects, not, you know, yelling for this and that and the other, not raising money for this. Like, I just can't, I can't imagine living life another way. And it's good for everybody else to do their thing. But like, I think for those of us that can't not do it, we need to keep doing it, you know, because Mm -hmm. we need those people that have, 
I, and I need to know that there's other people doing that as well because sometimes I feel like I'm crazy. Like sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm going on years six of being self-employed, six years of spending more money than I've made every single year. Like I look at my tax and I'm like, how, how do we make it? And here we are, right? Living in the most expensive city in the U.S., like starting all this stuff, three companies now, a nonprofit, like just trying to make it work. It's like I wouldn't, all the things that I have to deal with on a daily basis wouldn't trade it for, you know, a half million dollar paycheck from some, you know, corporate, co- just wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I love yep. it. Same here, man. Okay. Um, let's go through a couple of the things you've done as we inch closer in this conversation to talking about dream core, a lot of the stuff you're doing now, the equal act. I want to spend some time on that. Um, talk about your involvement in close Rikers, um, for a few reasons. One is this is not a New York based podcast. We have listeners in dozens of countries on the world, every state. There's a lot of people that might know conceptually about Rikers and the importance of this conversation about Rikers and what it means and why it shouldn't exist and all those things. So could you uh, not just talk about the campaign and your involvement, but actually what what we're up against here? Yeah. Uh, so when I was in law school, I began um, a program working with kids incarcerated in Rikers. And at the time, um, you know, back in the late aughts, there were probably about 600 to 700 16 and 17 year olds on Rikers Island on a given night. At the time, there were probably about 12 or 13,000 people there at a, on a given night. And um, it was to be in that jail was just um, another world. I mean, you, you talked about the duality of New York, you know, the rich and the poor. I mean, this is right next to LaGuardia Airport. If you've ever landed in LaGuardia Airport, if you look out your window, you can actually see Rikers Island. Yep. And um, the fact that we have really such a one of the country's most infamous, horrific jails right under our noses there uh, was just an affront to me as a New Yorker. And of course, at that point, I was starting to get into progressive politics. New York loves bragging on itself as a progressive city. And here we have this uh, medieval torture chamber jail there. And, um, I, you know, during that my time working there, I, you know, sort of penciled in all these thoughts and impressions. But honestly, I didn't really know what to do about it until about five years later, um, I saw a speaker on a panel, Glenn Martin, talk about how he's going to start mm. a campaign mm. to close Rikers. And I looked on Facebook and we had one mutual friend. So I looked up and I said, hey, do you know how to get me in touch with Glenn? And, you know, I reached out to him and we had a cup of coffee. And 48 hours later, I was giving notice at my police oversight job and joining him at Just Leadership USA to be its first advocacy director and to run the Close Rikers campaign. Now, uh, a little bit more about Rikers. It was... Uh, uh, built in 1935 as this island jail in New York City for New Yorkers who were pre-trial. So, you know, if you are arrested and sent to jail, um, that's where you wait until your case is determined. And if you're found guilty or plead guilty, you're sent to prison, right? So that's what jail is. It's a pre-trial detention facility. Rikers is was at times the biggest one in the United States, maybe the world. Um, I think now, you know, Houston and, and L.A. probably have more people there than, than Rikers does. Um but, you know, it's it's not just a single building. It's an entire complex of jails. And the Close Rikers campaign was saying, if we actually enacted policies that tried to stop the cycle of incarceration, tried to help prevent people from going to jail and prison in the first place, try to give them the resources they need, we actually wouldn't need to have so many jail beds. And we mm-hmm. could succeed in closing, uh, you know, this atrocity, this sort of moral stain on our city and have a much smaller jail system after it's after it's over. And so... Uh, the Close Rikers campaign was launched in the beginning of 2016. A lot of 2016 
you know, as with many new campaigns, we were kind of in the wilderness, you know, didn't have a lot of mainstream support, didn't have a lot of wins to speak of. Um, but we were slowly building power. We were building a base of people who had been directly impacted by Rikers to tell that story that so many New Yorkers were not aware of. We were working on legislation related to closing Rikers, like how do we pass bail reform and change our pretrial systems. We were building alliances. We were getting politicians involved, celebrities involved. And you know, we basically uh, ended 2016, went into 2017 uh, with a really intense mobilization and eventually got the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio at the time, uh, to agree that Rikers should close. And you know, about a year and a half after that, um, got a vote in the city council uh, basically codifying that Rikers should close. So that's almost a really good story, right? Because we- Almost. Yes. Uh, all throughout that political process, you know, there we were very uh, skeptical that politicians were showing the actual urgency that they were presenting the public with. Mm. Even, even the day that Bill de Blasio said, that he believed that it was time to close Rikers. He would not even acknowledge the close Rikers campaign by name. He actually pretended it was something he'd come to a conclusion he'd come to on his own. Uh, and I think that set the uh the standard for what would be a couple of years of uh, you know, very slow progress, where I think we could have closed Rikers Island by now had we really gone all in and done it. Instead, de Blasio left it a very much unfinished project. We now have a mayor, Eric Adams, who is uh, I think more skeptical of closing Rikers. Um, so Rikers remains open. Uh, and I think, you know, you could ask whether the close Rikers campaign was a success. I think it was because there's far fewer people in Rikers Island than there were when we started. We have a commitment from the city of New York to close it. And it's, you know, part on its 10 year track. And we've passed a lot of things along the way, including bail reform, uh, discovery reform, speedy trial reform laws that have made it more fair to people going through the criminal justice system. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I will feel like the campaign is unfinished until, while Rikers is still open. Yeah. I mean, yes, I count the work that you've done as a win, but not a complete, you know, like there is an uncompleted task. And I know that you would love for that to be completed. And again, like most things in life, you know, it takes far longer. It shouldn't take longer. There are things that we've already mentioned, issues that we've already mentioned in this conversation that could be eradicated really, really quickly. But we live in a very complicated world. And, and, and just one more thing on that. I just want to keep reminding people how not progressive New York is, even though we say that we are. Um, I mean, literally, there's, you know, they're wanting to build a mega prison in Chinatown, right? This humongous monster, just gross. Doesn't matter what the building, it's, it's a gross building as it is. But then it's going to, they, they want to put a, a right in the middle of Manhattan. Like it's just wild that we're still even having these conversations when we are touting ourselves as this progressive sort of city that is changing the world and doing this or that. But Rikers, you, you, you use the word medieval. I've used primitive, same difference. Like it's wild that that thing still exists. Like it is so backward, it is so outdated. It is horrible. It's horrific. And yet there are thousands of people sitting there right now, a few miles from where we're sitting right now, um, in this damp, cold, not taken care of, really outdated, you know, infrastructure. And it it's happening right now under mm -hmm. our noses, before our eyes. Like it's just wild to me. Yeah. And so, you know, there was coming out of that experience, I was thinking that this is really the kind of 
after years of sort of feeling around for things that like I did care about and things that I might be good at, I really felt like this is what I want to do. And so, you know, I, we started campaigns to close jails and prisons in other places too, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, uh, LA. And me personally, I went to actually move to St. Louis briefly to help activists there, many of whom were the same activists who came out of Ferguson, um, launched this campaign called Close the Workhouse. Now, the workhouse, as the name might suggest, I mean, it was actually like a quarry breaking, uh, you know, jail yeah. uh, through the, the 60s. And um, in my opinion, actually, maybe the worst jail in the United States, just in terms of, oh, uh, wow. I mean, it's it's like Rikers with stakes, you know what I mean? And like 120 degree weather in the summer and no air conditioning. In fact, that's sort of what brought it to my attention was, um, you know, they, they had no air conditioning and people were literally burning to death in there and it became a short-lived national story. And I saw the videos and yeah. I said, you know, this, I got to figure out how we can get down there. And um, there is a good story there. The workhouse uh, is, was closed as a result of the, the Close the Workhouse campaign and the work of organizers in St. Louis. Um, and so I think that's always going to be the work that resonates with me the most because there's something special about taking this this edifice, right, that represents so much pain and horror and just like shutting it down and, um, you know, and being able to change the system from there. But, um, but yeah, so I think, uh, with, with Rikers, another lesson learned is, uh, for me that when you do advocacy, especially in this day and age, um, a lot of us, you know, a lot of the, the ways people learn to be organizers from, you know, the sixties and seventies, like those playbooks are different than the world we live in now. Yeah. Things just happen at a much more rapid pace and that can be helpful. Like we won the Close Rikers campaign much faster than we thought we were going to, right? We had like a, a two-year and a three-year plan and a longer plan. And we actually got the mayor to agree with us, you know, 15 months into our campaign. And I think a big reason for that is in the social media age, information travels very fast, momentum accumulates very fast. And that's good for movements, right? That means you can get a bunch of energy behind something uh, much faster than you ever could have before. It also means that that's going to last a lot shorter, yep. right? Your windows are shorter for change. Um, and so I think in retrospect, you know, we should have taken the peak momentum we had and just really gotten everything we could have out of that very narrow window and not thought that it would always be open. And that's really what's happening now is there's less urgency now to close Rikers than ever. People are exhausted. People have moved on. There's other things. There's other people in charge. Uh, so, you know, that's some, to me, some lessons learned, you know, the, you have to be ready when the moment comes and just maximize it. That's a really good point. And it's one of the, I think the complicated things about being, um, a do-gooder an activist today is, I guess we're all trying to, whatever our thing is, whether it's a singular campaign or an organization or an idea or a phrase or a hashtag or whatever, we're trying we say we're not, but we're, we want it to go viral. We want it to go big. We want it to, we want it to go so big that all these celebrities and then they can retweet and then it gets bigger and then all this attention on it. And that's a good thing. I don't think that's bad, especially if we make sure our motivations and our ego is in check. Right. And it's, we're really doing this for the good of what, you know, X, Y, or Z issue, but that's it. Right. Is, is you work so hard to get these projects going and you don't know what the payoff is going to be because it could remain very low on everyone's intention, you know, uh, on social media and otherwise. And so you put all this work into it and it doesn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden it does gain momentum. And may, maybe it's not, it's no fault of your own that you're not prepared to, to like build on that momentum. Cause it's hard. Once the momentum's built, it's now more work 
to keep that thing going. You've made this big wave. Well, how do you keep a big wave from becoming a small wave again? Well, it takes a lot of pressure and a lot of inertia and a lot of whatever makes a, a wave stay big for a long time. That's hard work. And if you're not prepared for it, if you don't have the resources, the money, the system, the team, um, and I, I've seen this over and over again, where something it gets the attention, it goes viral, there's not this the the support system there, or just the, the know-how. Like, you, you don't expect it to happen, so you don't know that you're supposed to keep it going. You think it's going to be there two months later. Nope, wave's gone. People, have, they moved on. If it was two months later, they moved on one month and 27 days ago. Right. And, and there is, you know, there is stuff within your control, right? And so when you're running a campaign, um, it is, it can be electric to have that big march, that big protest. And what I always, always, you know, tell my organizers and my team is if you're going to do a big event, then you should have by the, by the day of the big event, you should know what your next one is going to be, mm. because that's going to be when you have yep. the most people's attention, yep. right? And say, you know, thank you for coming out this March in six weeks, we're going to have this vigil. And, uh, you know, at the vigil, be like, thanks for coming out to this vigil. You know, in three weeks, we're going to do this lobby day. And that's, that is how you keep the wave going. But to your point, I mean, that does take know-how that takes, that takes trained staff, right. That takes, or, or, you know, very experienced volunteers. Um, so, you know, there is a science to it. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's also very draining to, to keep that level of energy going over long periods of time. I know that you probably have to be careful how you talk about some of these ideas because there's you as a person and there's you representing, you know, the organizations you work with. So I am, I am a prison abolitionist. Like I believe that a prison should be, I don't believe, I believe there are certain things that there are certain people and crimes that need to be looked at differently for sure. But our system as it currently is prison system abolished and our policing system abolished. Like I don't police reform, doesn't exist in my mind. They've had hundreds of years to reform. They started as slave catchers. There has been there has been corruption since day one until day now. So you you can't fix it. The in my mind, the 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 wood of your house is so rotten. Like you have to just demolish it and start over. In my mind, how do you with these issues that you're talking about? Because we didn't we haven't talked about police abolition, but like you're talking about prison stuff, police you know uh, criminal legal system reform. And we addressed the police earlier. Like, how do you, do you see these things as being able to be reformed? Do you think that they have to be demolished and built back up? Some of them built back up some systems we don't need anymore. How do you think, like, in other words, like as you're working toward this, this is your life's work right now. What are you working toward? You know? Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a question that comes up a lot. And I think, um, you know the the, the very the, you know, the subject of abolitionism has been particularly in the last few years, right? Something that's gotten a lot more discussion and attention. And this, I think, sometimes unfortunate uh, uh, contrast made between um, from people who represent sort of both wings of it between abolition and reform, right? Where uh, you know people who are abolitionists look at certain reforms and say, well, you know, those are too modest or selling out, mm. and people who are in this sort of day to day. You know, process of of changing laws and reforming. You know, look and say, well, you know, what what is exactly the game plan for people who believe in abolition? And for me, like, I think, I think two things. One, uh, for people who believe in in big changes to the system, you've got to do like a series of things to get there. And uh, I'm doing basically everything I can. Our organization is doing everything we can to get to a place where we have fewer people in prison, where we have fairer laws, where we have more resources for Black and Brown communities. Um, 
And, you know, that's, that may not be enough for some people, but we are building as much power as we can to do those things. Right. And I think ideology doesn't really matter if you don't have like a power analysis that Mm. comes with it. Right. Like, uh, what is exactly, you know, how can we take the people who are in power, push them the most that we can replace them to the greatest extent that we can, uh, you know, win them over to the greatest extent that we can. And what is that, what does that allow us to do? And that leads me to my second point, which is right now, like we're losing that fight, right? You can be all the way on the abolitionist spectrum or all the way on like the reformist spectrum. We're all losing that fight currently, right? We're like the last two years, we're like hanging on trying to defend things we already won, right? Um, Here in New York, there was a fight about, you know, people trying to get rid of the bail reform laws that we won a few years ago. And we succeeded in that we didn't prevent them from rolling back our old wins, right? So I think now more than ever is a time for, at least on the issue of criminal justice, for people who, you know, find themselves anywhere on that spectrum to find common cause around, you know, the things we all agree on and try to protect the wins that we have and get new wins and and try to, you know, reduce the number of people in jail, reduce the number of people in prison. I think for people who are coming up, um, you know, as young people who were where I was 20 years ago, I think that's actually, you know, a pretty important question. Like, you know, what, what do you want to do with your career and your life to, uh, and, and I think there's a space for everybody, a, a role for everyone to play. Um, you know, personally, I'm not out there pushing abolitionism because the people that I am trying to, you know, the, my targets, the people who I'm trying to target, totally. you know, they're, they're not going to respond to that. No. Nope. And, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think those people shouldn't do it. Um, I think if you believe in it and you want to organize for it, you know, that's what you should do. And, um, you know, and, and I think people who are coming up, like, should be as bold as they want to be. Um, for me, like, being at a position as a as a director of an organization that works uh, not just with Democrats, we're not great on this issue, obviously, right? That we were just, we, we spent this whole yeah. conversation talking about New York, which is run by Democrats. Yep. Um, yep. But, you know, we're Republicans as well. You know, we're, we're working with Republicans on this legislation we're trying to pass now to bring people home from federal prison. And, uh, you know, uh, the, even, even what some people consider modest reforms is about as far as they're willing to go. And so that's the world I have to operate in as, uh, as a director of this criminal justice program. So I, I feel like I may have meandered a little bit to your question, but I'm happy to, di- I mean, this is such an important point, I think for people to, in the movement, to have this conversation and not feel like, uh, you know, not feel afraid to, to talk about the nuances here. No, no, no. I, I don't think you meandered at all. I, I got exactly out of it what I wanted to, which is, which is it's complicated, right? Yeah. It's complicated. And I have to realize that if I'm going to, and I've gone back and forth on this, um, we're, we're pitching a TV show right now that hopefully is, it's getting closer to getting picked up. And it's, it's basically what we're doing on the podcast, but explosive times a hundred and, you know, a lot more going out and getting the stories, talking with people we don't agree with. And, and I realized that uh, here's what I realized. You, you, you said, you said a few seconds ago, we've been, you know, kind of, you know, shitting on a lot of New York stuff, but it's run by Democrats. Like it's run by the people that I yeah. vote for. And I just still, I still do think at the end of the day, all things considered, I will continue to vote with the democratic party because they do by and large stand for the things that I stand for. Right but incredibly imperfectly, mm-hmm. right? Like every 
month or so, every day, I think to myself, the Democratic Party will not save you. The Republican Party will not save you. We're the ones we've been waiting for, right? Like, I just repeat that to myself. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tweet that every, like, you know, month or so, just as a reminder to me and to others, like, listen, you can vote however you want. But at the end of the day, the God bless her, the, the Nancy, like, she doesn't care about us. You know, these 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 politicians, they are... I don't even want to think about all the backdoor deals that are happening and the this and the that and the secrets and the texts and the phone calls. How do we do this? And I, like, they're just, they, by and large, don't have our best interests in mind. Like, we've got to, and as nonpartisan as we can do, like, get the work done. So you're, as you just pointed out, you're not just talking with and re- recruiting and raising money from just Democrats. Like, you need a wide spectrum of people. Well- yeah, and I'll and I'll actually say, you know, before we talk about like the Equal Act, I'll say the reason this was a choice. Yeah, you know, I started with you know, hope is a choice. This decision to work with Republicans is a professional choice that I made. That was, you know, probably would have appalled nineteen year old me, um, in in fairness, right? And probably would have appalled twenty nine year old me too. Um, but here's the the conclusion I kind of came to after working at Just Leadership, where I closed the workhouse, the ACLU, where I spent a few years doing criminal justice work across the country. You know, I, I saw the output of, you know, of lefty organizations getting together without a power analysis, without a game plan about how we're going to win change in places that are controlled by Republicans across the Midwest, across the South. I mean, look at look at a map on election night, right? There's yep. a lot of places in this country where Republicans control either one, one part of the legislature, the governor's mansion, or both. Uh, and there are a lot of people locked up in jails and prisons in those places. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, the incarceration rate in somewhere like Louisiana or Oklahoma is four times what it is in New England, right? So if you really want to go to yeah, end mass incarceration, you got to go to some of the most conservative places in the country. And what I realized is, you know, I didn't really know how to do that. I did not know how to win criminal justice reform in conservative places. And so uh, when the op- opening came for national director of Dream Corps Justice, um, you know, I, I reached out to some people I knew there and said, I think I was considering applying because I wanted to, you know, hone that craft because at the end of the day, if we don't know how to go into a conservative state house and make the case for criminal justice reform, even if it's a more modest version than what we have here in New York, then what we're really doing is leaving all those people behind in those systems. And um, so that's what brought me to Dream Corps. Is Dream Corps, it's a progressive organization, but one that is committed to working uh, with unlikely allies in a bipartisan fashion to get things done in criminal justice and other issues, climate change, tech equity, you know, bringing resources to black and brown communities. Um, my area being criminal justice. And so I think, you know, it takes all kinds to change the system. You need, you need visionaries, you need pioneers, you need people pushing the envelope. But I felt like there was a dearth of people with progressive criminal justice values who were thinking about how do I actually help people in jail and prison in states or at the federal level, the federal prison system being the biggest prison system in America, you know, how do we get things done in Congress that can actually bring people home from federal prison? And that requires a strategy that will uh, not just be tolerable, but will actually be, you know, win the support of uh, Republicans. So I've been learning, you know, you said uh, my 19-year-old me and then 29-year-old me would would completely disagree with how I'm living today, how I'm working today. I think that would be true of me for like last year me, uh, or sometimes even like two weeks ago me, because I'm constantly like, I go back and forth on this you know, some days I'm just like, how could anyone, how could anyone good, like good, stay in the Republican Party? Like, 
They're literally actively, verbally, physically, mentally, emotionally, they are trying to set us back decades, like in real time. Just what what was it last last night? This this baby formula act, right? Twenty eight mm-hmm. million dollars. Only twelve Republicans in the House crossed the aisle. Every Democrat, twelve Republicans. One hundred ninety eight Republicans said, "Nope, we don't care about this this baby formula shortage." Right? These are the people that scream pro life um, every single day of their lives. And so, a lot of times, even currently, like I'm I'm this I'm this walking contradiction because some days I'm like I don't want anything to do with you. But most days, or I should say, no, not most days, half the days, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with you. And the other half, I'm like, no, these people, there are, if we're going to name a few like politicians, right, for example, like there there are the the Ben Sasses of the world, the Susan Collinses of the world. There's certain people that I'm like, okay, I don't agree with many of the things that you vote for, some of the things you stand up for, but like, I think you're a good person. We have a different perspective on certain things, but like, I, I would work with you on a number of issues, right? And I think we need to remember that there are those people, just as we want them to remember on that side, that there are people over here that even if you're not pro-choice and you're not this and you're not that and you're not any number of things, that you can work with them and you can work with us. Like, I want conservatives to remember that me, a pretty leftist dude, you can work with me. Like, I want to work with you on these things. Well, yeah, I think what you're saying is right. And there's been, you know, moments, you know, I, I spent a year uh, in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina doing Katrina relief there with, uh, it's called Hands-On Disaster Response, the largest uh, secular relief group in the Gulf Coast. You know, most of the groups down there were religious right. groups. And um, yeah, I mean, we were working almost exclusively with Republican partners, uh, given that we were in Mississippi. We did a lot of work with then Senator Thad Cochran's office. And I mean, yep. he has served as they come. And when you were t- when we are on the subject of you know how do we get resources to homeowners and uh, residents and churches and groups that were had their you know lost everything in, in a, a historic flood, you know that kind of partisan stuff melts away a little bit. We didn't spend time talking about that. So there there is that human to human part of it. Yeah. But there's something to me, at least in my work, that's more important, which is, uh, it's not it doesn't really matter how I feel about Chuck Grassley or how Chuck Grassley feels about me. What's important is. You know, my mission is my my sort of allegiance and purpose is around the people who are in prison in the federal system in this example. Mm. And mm. so am I serving them by, you know, not working with Chuck Grassley because of his position on abortion or January 6th? Well, no, I'm not, right? That would be a disservice to the people who, you know, I, I claim to be the director of this nonprofit that is trying to bring people home from prison. Yeah. But am I really doing that job if I'm letting, you know, that my work be clouded by, you know, how I feel about the politics of today as, as you know, terrible as the politics today are. No, I'd be, I wouldn't be doing my job and I wouldn't be serving that community. And so I think that's how I, I look at it. I think it's actually like for me, very straightforward. If, if Senator Grassley is able to help us bring people home from federal prison, I'm going to work with him on that. Like end of story. And are there like, is there a line to cross? I mean, you know, I feel like I come up on it every now and then there was, you know, a senator who, uh, you know, raised questions about interracial marriage, like literally the day before we were supposed to have a meeting with him. I mean, that's, you know, that, that definitely makes you question whether, (laughs) whether this is the right theory of change for sure. But, um, I think at the end of the day, that is always what guides me is like, I'm supposed to be doing this mission. And if that means working with people who say or do things that might be abhorrent in certain situations, if I can get them to free people, then that makes it worth it. 
Yeah, I love that. I, I love, I, I just learned something from you that I hope that I'll remember and work on is it doesn't really matter how you feel about this person. That's not, that's not what, what's at stake here. What's at stake are the lives, the real lives, the voiceless, the vulnerable, the marginalized people that couldn't even get here. Like they're not in, they could never get in the rooms you're in to talk to the people you talk to about these big issues. So you have a responsibility to not see Chuck Grassley or Lindsey Graham or whoever else for their sometimes horrific positions they hold. That's not it. It's all the other people that can be helped if we can agree on X, Y, and Z, right? And, and by the way, you know, we have central to each of the organizations and campaigns I've been part of is this idea that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, right? The idea that you're supposed to be organizing with people most directly impacted. And if you really, we bring formerly incarcerated leaders from across the country into spaces like the U.S. Senate to meet with their representatives. And, you know, of course, you know, there are plenty of, everybody has their own political opinions. Um, but you'll find that, you know, pe most people who are directly impacted, who have family members who are behind bars, who have friends who, you know, they got out of prison, but their friends are still there. They care a little bit less than we do. And then some, that some people on Twitter do about whether, oh, you're working with X or you're meeting with Y. It's like, they're on a mission, you know? And I think, um, so I, I just think that it's it's sort of an easy one in the long run. Yeah, it's an easy one in the long run. That's that's exactly right. Do you know Gretchen Carlson? I do. Yeah. Yeah, she's a good friend, wonderful person, and and I was reminded of what you're describing, and, and we'll talk more about this sort of dynamic when we get to the Equal Act here in a second. You know, her recent uh, bill, the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act that ended up getting signed by President Biden just recently, a couple months ago, you know, was sponsored by Lindsey Graham and Kirsten Gillibrand. Mm. Like, could not be more opposite. And they came together because it's the right thing to do. Lindsey Graham's actually a sponsor of the Equal Act. Amazing. Yeah. And, and I would say that the way we got there is, you know, we had a formerly incarcerated leader. Uh, we had several in the meeting, but in particular... Uh, we had a leader who was from South Carolina who, uh, you know, was impacted by the war on drugs and told such a compelling story in that meeting that the staffer was mo visibly moved in that meeting and said that she would be recommending sponsorship to her boss, right? Because that's how it works. You usually aren't meeting with the senators, right? right? right. And, and, it, and then we were like, we were pleasantly surprised to hear that. And then we were even more surprised when he signed on. And, but he's been, you know, unwavering in his commitment. And I think- it does make me think, um, since this is really, I'll be honest, the first job in which I've gone completely all in on the idea of not giving up on targets, despite mm. what, what I might think of them from their political reputations. I mean, we got the sponsorship of Cynthia Lummis in, in Wyoming, who's very far on the yep, right, yep. Um, but it turns out has fairly libertarian tendencies around criminal justice. Um, and, you know, we got the support of Senator Manchin. And, you know, it just made me wonder, you know, how many other issues we might be leaving votes on the table because, you know, we, we go in with the assumption that this is, this has to be a partisan wedge issue because of the way it's being talked about. Now, you know, I think criminal justice, some people say complimented as, oh, well, this is an area, a rare area of bipartisanship, but like, it's not like it was magically so, right? In fact, not so long ago, it was bipartisan and that both parties were very hostile to criminal justice reform. As recently as, um, you know, 2000, 
eight, I would say. I mean, Barack Obama did not talk about criminal justice in either of his presidential elections. No. Yeah. Right? right. So like there was a time not too long ago where like they were, both parties were unified against criminal justice. Now both parties to different extents are in favor of it. Like that didn't happen overnight or by magic. I mean, that happened by very concerted organizing, not just by our organization, but by, you know, a handful of organizations that have been really committed to fostering that. And I just wonder, are there other issues where we're leaving that opportunity on the table? No, I, I, I think you're hundred percent correct. I guess what I'm thinking about right now, as you were just describing that, you know, we, we, we live in this very, um, you know, Republican Democrat world, right. In many other countries that seem to have their shit together better than we do have five, six, seven, 10, 15 parties, right. Where there's a true, like coming to the table, you know, this, this, you know, talk about the ideas, talk about the issues. And it's not really like you're one or the other. I think a lot of our, the, the divisiveness in this country is because it's one or the other. There's not a third option. So you would think that I, I, I thousand percent buy into what you're saying. And so you'd think, and I think a lot of people do as well. So why can't we, is the answer not to have a third party and we just need to figure out how to do it this way? Because this duopoly doesn't seem to be working, but then you have a, like kind of an Andrew Yang, right. Who's started the forward party. God bless him, but doesn't seem to be like, I don't suspect that there's actually going to be a real thing. Like, I hope so, but I don't think so. Like I, it's, it's one or the other. And so it, it, as long as we live in this country where it is, it seems to be like for the foreseeable future, it will be your Democrat or like no independents going to win, no green part. Like it's not, none of those matter. It only matters if you're Republican or Democrat. So should, do you see a day when we have more parties or more ideas or, or is the task at hand to figure out how to do more of what you're doing? Okay. I'm a Democrat. How can I reach across the aisle? I'm a Republican. How can I reach across the aisle and truly like work together with these people? Yeah. I mean, now I'm like quite out of my depth. I, I definitely don't have like a great- Just an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Unified political theory on the sure. future of the party system. But I, you know, the way I think about it is, well, I mean, short answer is I think we're kind of stuck with the system we have, right? We've had it for so long. It would be kind of, you know, it's never really been seriously threatened in my lifetime or, or any time, you know, close to it. But I'll say this about how to approach conversations. When- when we do power mapping at the beginning of a campaign or, mm. you know, in the middle of a campaign, we're sort of sizing up, okay, who has power to affect our issue? Who are our political targets? It, you know, the way I do power mapping, I have people sort of ranked one to five, one being like, you're the best champion of our issue. You're literally a cheerleader for it. Five being like, you hate it. You're working day and night to stop us. Mm. Right. And of course we always think about, you know, how we get people who are important from the middle, like a three to a, a one, like how do we get that person on the fence to support us? There's also value, I think, in getting somebody from a five to a four or a four to a three. Sure. You know, what I mean by that is like taking somebody who, you know, may have instinctively been against you, and this is a lot of like classic Democrat Republican stuff, who instinctively is against you, get them to like, huh, maybe. Or I don't know. That's a good point. Right? Like there's some But value they're no that, longer like dogmatically yeah. standing. And on then it. that's yeah. that's four to three. And then five yep. to four is like getting somebody who like, you know, may like hate your guts because you're like a lefty, you know, weirdly dressing guy from New York city and be like, you know what? Like, I don't agree with you, but like, I respect you as a person. And like, I will not, you know, filibuster this bill, um, or I will not spike this bill in committee. Uh, and there is some utility to getting people from like hostility to just opposition or just opposition to neutrality, uh, or neutrality to slight support. Um, and so I think, you know, 
that can be done. We, you can think about that in a Democrat-Republican framing, right? Like, are there issues where that Democrats believe in where they can get the Republicans to be a little bit less hostile? Mm. I think that there could be, um, and uh, and vice versa. Great answer. Even if it was out of it was out of both of our depths. That's I'm, yeah. I'm also not. I have no business discussing this, but it's interesting to me that because I don't know what the way forward is. I, I I'm I'm like a, in a weird way, sort of like sort of attracted to what Andrew Yang's trying to do. But I think it's just that trying to do it. Like I don't, I don't see it actually picking up speed. So I'm just wondering. Well, maybe I should stop putting my effort into seeing if there's a third way, and just figure out how I can do it well in the framework. Like you said, that in our lifetime hasn't been challenged. It's going to be here, I think, for my kids' lifetime as well. So, um, okay, let's spend the last third of our conversation talking about your work at DreamCore Justice, and then the Equal Act. Um, so begin, you know, we've referenced DreamCore multiple times. Uh, you're the executive or national director? National director. National director. Mm-hmm. Um, who is DreamCore? What do y'all do? What's the work consist of? Um, and we were supposed to do this, well, we had initially talked about doing this months ago, leading up to the Day of Empathy that happened a couple months ago, and so many amazing things coming out of this organization. Um, how did it come about? All that stuff. Sure. So DreamCore was founded uh, in 2015 uh, by Van Jones, uh, who many people know as a CNN commentator, but who actually spent most of his career as, as an organizer uh, coming out of Oakland. Um, the issues that he spent his career working on are criminal justice, uh, green jobs, and getting more black and brown people into the tech industry. And so DreamCore, those are fundamentally the three things we do, and we call those programs DreamCore Justice, DreamCore Green for All, and DreamCore Tech. So I'm the national director of DreamCore Justice, and uh, you know we are an organization that centers the voice of directly impacted people to try to change policies at the state and federal level. Um, so that's pretty general. I'd say specifically what we do is one, we three things. One, we have a national empathy network. That is a network of directly impacted people who have either are formerly incarcerated or experienced prison through a loved one and are trying to do something about it. And we call it a network because it is really, you know, 50 statewide people who often have their own operations, like their own small nonprofit that they're working on, their own reentry organization. But by pulling them together, we connect them to each other, we provide trainings, we give them resources, we give them funding, and we have them collaborate with us on state and federal campaigns. Now, at the state level, we work at about, about six or seven states in a given year, mostly in the South and Midwest. You know, We talked about this earlier, that uh, incarceration rates are generally higher in the South and Midwest than they are in the East and West Coast, which is why we focus on those regions of the country. And then we have our whole federal um, portfolio. And so that is uh, trying to pass uh, criminal justice legislation at the federal level, which usually, not always, but usually uh, affects people who are in the federal prison system. And there's about 165,000 people today in our federal prison system, you know, making it the biggest system in the country. Um, so that's sort of what we do. Uh, the Day of Empathy, which you alluded to, is our national day of action. We did events in 22 states and a big culminating event in Washington, D.C., where we uh, lifted up or sort of celebrated stories of people impacted by the system coming up with brilliant ways to change it, which are ways to disrupt the prison industry, ways to change the way we do reentry, change the way we run criminal justice campaigns. Uh, and now uh, I would say our biggest focus is passing this bill known as the Equal Act. Now, I think probably, you know, if, if a lot of your listeners are sort of, you know, have some activist bones in their body, they're, sure, they're, yeah. they're familiar with 
the uh, crack versus powder uh, disparity, right? It's one of the hallmarks of the racist hallmarks of the war on drugs in the United States is that in the 1980s, when um, crack use was rising, um, there was this sort of hysteria that crack was this uniquely dangerous, uniquely black drug, um, which was, you know, inaccurate. It was, you know, used by all races. Um, but it was, uh, there was legislation passed that basically punished the use of crack much, much more severely than the use of powder cocaine, uh, such that basically people would be punished a hundred times more aggressively for crack versus powder cocaine. And this would, you know, generally fall on black urban communities where this would be punished. Uh, About 90% of the people in federal prison for crack um, are black. And, you know, it's, we're not, this is not the first time people have realized how messed up that was. Uh, In 2010, there were some tweaks to that law. 2018, there were a few more tweaks to that law. But as we sit here today, if, uh, you know, it still takes 18 times as much powder cocaine to trigger mandatory minimums as it does crack. So we say the ratio is 18 to one for crack versus powder. Um, and that again, disproportionately falls on, on poor black communities. So the equal act, as the name suggests, would equalize the treatment of crack and powder cocaine under federal sentencing laws. That means that moving forward, um, far fewer people would go into prison for crack possession or, or low levels of crack dealing. And it also means that many people, about 8,000 people, would come home from federal prison much sooner. These are people who have, may be there since the 80s, the 90s, the oh early aughts. And, um, you know, they they have been sitting in federal prison all those years um, over drugs. And I think, you know, I could, I could talk at great length about the drug war. I think all aspects of the drug war are extremely screwed up. Um, but this is just, you know, this would be not only a great victory for those 8,000 families, but it would be the first time a law from the war on drugs era has been completely reversed. And I think there'd be like a pretty strong symbolic effect there too to recognizing what a mistake the war on drugs was and how we've hopefully evolved as a country. I mean, Joe Biden was one of the architects of those laws. 86, Uh, right? Yeah. Yep. And he is now the president and has said that he supports the Equal Act. And so that's a pretty big shift. Now, much like with the Close Rikers campaign, I'm not going to be, I'm not happy with rhetoric, right? Like I want to actually pass the Equal Act. But the fact that we have, you know, one of the people who signed that bill saying that he supports it being reversed, you know, is a sign of the progress that we've made. And so uh, the Equal Act has passed the House with 360 votes. You know, we're talking about Amazing. how to, you know, how to work across party lines. There are 140 Republicans who voted for it. Um, and now we're in the Senate. And the Senate is usually where dreams go to die, as, as you know, people yep. were telling me in D.C. when I was visiting yesterday. And nevertheless, we've got not one, not two, but 11 Republican senators to sign on as sponsors of the bill. We have the support of Joe Manchin. Uh, we have the sponsorship support of Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. And we're going to be doing, um, you know, a press conference with him to announce that. And so that's we've really gotten this pretty close to the finish line. And I mean, at this point, what we're really trying to do is just get it onto the floor of the United States Senate. Um, and that will take some willpower and courage from democratic leadership, which has often been lacking that in the past. And it'll have to require some cooperation from Republicans who have struggled with that in the past. And so I think we're really hoping for both Democrats and Republicans to show up as you know the best versions of themselves to just get this thing done in a bipartisan way. Um, but it's been a pretty amazing journey to see, um, 
so many Republicans get on board with this and for Democratic leadership to at least, you know, on paper say that this is a priority. And so um, we're just trying to get this done now in the next couple of weeks. When you said the 8,000 number, I just like imagined 8,000 people in a room. Like that's a lot of people that would go back to their families and probably a lot of them, you know, they've outlived other family members, but the family is still there, whether it's grown up children or whatever. Can I, can um, I tell something about yeah, that? Yeah, please do. We have a, um, a program as, uh, associate on our team, um, Ashley Jackson, who, uh, she basically never got to grow up with her father. He was uh, incarcerated when I think she was less than one years old on crack related charges. And she spent a lot of her 20s um, learning how to be an advocate, trying to get him home from prison. He, of course, was also like a very strong advocate for himself. You know, there are some people in prison who, you know, fight, you know, day mm-hmm. after day to get mm-hmm. themselves home. And uh, his name is Oren Jackson. And, you know, in part because of the, uh, because of the sort of uh, rules relating to the First Step Act, which our organization helped pass in 2018, Orrin Jackson was able to um, come home from prison last summer after serving 31 years of a 90-year prison sentence. And so she was able to spend Thanksgiving with her father for the first time in her life. Mm. And, you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, a person can have a 30-year sentence, but a lot of those people have, you know, a daughter or a spouse or another relative who's been waiting all that time. And so, yeah, I always think of the, you know, you, you picture the room, that's a great great visualization, but I always also just picture the whole family yeah. that's behind that. I think it would be helpful. Before we go on, I have a few more questions regarding the Equal Act and y'all's work involved in that, but I think it would maybe be, you don't have to give, like, just give a short primer, not this long exhaustive, but whatever you want to say about the war on drugs, because I think it's, I think uh, uh, knowing what I know about the demographic of our listeners, um, a lot of them are young and have probably gotten a less than superior education on the war on drugs and what the reality of, of that. A lot of them probably grew up in evangelical homes and, you know, around, around just really misguided and, and frankly untrue rhetoric around drugs and the war on drugs and why, you know, how bad these people are, all those things. So yeah, give us just your perspective, your view on what's happened. Like I'm, I know I'm going to agree with everything. Like, it's so horrific to me that, like, I like weed. I smoke weed all the time. It helps me with my ADHD. It's really good for my health. I rarely drink. This is a way better alternative for me to, like, keep me, like, chill, right? But the very fact that there are people, like, I was out yesterday. Where was I walking? I mean, just the whole entire block was just just weed everywhere. Good. Good for them. The point is, and again, I live next to a very populated police station. Nobody gives a shit. Like the very fact that there are still people, forget cocaine and all that. Like there are people in prison for weed. Mm -hmm. Like the very thing that you and I could go, we could go outside right now outside this building and smoke a blunt and nobody would stop us. Nobody would care. Beyond that, there are people profiting off it now. And there are people, right, right. Like look at Colorado, look at these states that have profited billions of dollars going back into the economy going toward programs that actually matter. It's just completely insane to me that we're still dealing with this. So give a picture of the war on drugs and how we can, in, I think we're inching closer toward a lot of these things, you know, finding resolution or at least like better, you know, better plan forward. Yeah, so the war on drugs, uh, 
was officially launched about uh, 51 years ago. We did a 50th anniversary event last year in, in, in June, I believe, by Richard, President Richard Nixon. So it was a, you know, a, a moment in time that, you know, formally began where the federal government uh, entered alongside, you know, some state and, and local systems have always been very punitive and aggressive towards all forms of drug use. Um, but now it was, you know, validated as this federal public safety strategy and the outcome was um, politicians in both parties, uh, year after year, devoting more and more money to the criminalization of entire communities where drugs were easy to prosecute. And I say that specifically because, as you know, and as I'm sure many listeners know, you know, drugs have been prevalent in all American communities for a long time. But you know, it's harder for political and social reasons to prosecute wealthy and powerful people. For drugs, and so the victims of the war on drugs since its inception has predominantly been poor communities, generally poor black communities above all else, but also poor white communities. And uh, the outcome has been, you know, thousands and thousands of people, uh, probably millions, if you look at the history of the war on drugs, put through a jail and prison system over substances that are, you know, in some cases like marijuana. You know, probably net positives for like you just had a net positive in your life, and I think that's increasingly becoming accepted. But even when you look at uh, you know drugs beyond marijuana, because I think you'd be hard pressed, even though marijuana is still illegal and in some cases even can be a felony in certain states in America, I think we're on the right side of the, the mountain for that, Agreed. right? I think hopefully ten years from now you'll be able to just drive across the United States, and not worry about being pulled over for a small amount of marijuana, right? But um, even if you talk about more serious drugs, drugs that, you know, can be harmful to people individually, drugs that you can, you know, overdose and, and die from, there's also so much science and health literature now that shows that even for those more dangerous drugs, the answer is to be open about it so that 100%. you can, you can do them safely so that you can, if you have an addiction, you can wean yourself off of that addiction safely so that you can test the, the substances to make sure they're not dirty or laced with something. And the, the process that we have during the war on drugs era, which is the penalty for having drugs is so severe that it could literally uproot your life and take away your livelihood and send you to prison, has really forced you know drugs into the shadows and, and made them less safe and made them more dangerous to take. And um, it's really the worst possible outcome. And you've seen around the world countries recognizing that and starting to back away from that policy. Something made difficult, by the way, by the fact that the U.S. has such foreign policy influence and is totally opposed to that kind of process. So, you know, my hope is very much that, you know, in the next set of years, we move away from that entire mindset around the war on drugs. Even looking at something like the opioid crisis, which, you know, got a lot of notoriety because it was disproportionately affecting white communities. Yeah. Um, people, you know, recognize that, um, something that's always been true about most drugs, that this line between um, the the user and the dealer has also been one of these tropes that's been overstated by law enforcement and its allies. That in fact, you know, a lot of people who sell drugs are often doing so to pay for their own uh, consumption and addiction to it. And, you know, it's not like dealer is bad, user is okay, right? Like there's so much, um, there, there's such a really dastardly narrative that's been perpetuated for now 50 years around the use of drugs in this country. And I think um, I'm very hopeful that, again, this is trending in the right direction. I'm, you know, we keep coming back to hope, right? Like, I really think that, uh, you know, 20 years from now, we'll be in a situation where far more substances are legalized, 
far more substances are decriminalized so that people can't go to prison for them. And we're going to have a much safer, healthier society as a result. I have friends that live in Portland, one of the few places that has decriminalized all drugs. And they were talking about what the city looks like and how bad it looks right now. And they were just here the other day visiting. And, and I said, so, so do you think it was a bad idea that, that they decriminalized all these drugs? You know, they're seeing like tweaker, like just people doing stuff everywhere out in the open and just all this stuff and this homeless camps going up everywhere. All it, they just say it looks, looks bad. Like the city of Portland looks bad. And they were like, wait, no, 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 no. It's not, we voted for it. We're still happy that we voted for that. The city was not prepared to implement this sort of a strategy. Like Portugal mm. was one of the first places yeah. to decriminalize and then say, hey, you need your fix. Like, come here. We are professionals. You can come, get your daily dose. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go buy it. You don't have to go get into trouble to get it. Come here. You want help? Cool. We can help you. You need your daily hit? Cool. We can. And it was in a controlled environment. And so many statistics, everything went down. The, the 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 crime the tension around it the the stigma around it, everything went down because now there was yes they whether they saw what they were dealing with as a problem or not there was dignity now you gave dignity back to them versus treating them like shit because they got this problem this thing that they want or like you said so many people are doing this because it if you do it well, if you're if you're semi-successful, it pays way better. If you're not able to get a job because you have a prior felony or this or whatever, if you have some sort of situation where uh, you're not able to access work or this or that, like other people, well, this looks like a pretty good alternative, right? If you can get if you can get so a lot of, again, they're they're not doing it because they want to be a criminal. They're doing it because trying to provide for their family, trying to take care of their stuff, trying to take care of their kids. These are not bad people. These are people trying to make a way, and so. Yeah, I it, it, the war on drugs the most one of the most horrific things that's happened in our country. I I I cry I actually cry sometimes thinking about how many people are sitting in prison for just the dumbest things ever things that we could correct today. Mm -hmm. And I and and I I'm I'm hopeful as well. I think we're headed in the right direction. But also like how many more days, weeks, months, years will these non criminals? They're criminals by our legal system, but they shouldn't be in prison for it. how many, how much longer will they have to sit in prison while we get our shit together to decriminalize these things that should have never been criminalized in the, in, in, in the first place? Yeah, no, all well said. I think the last uh, thing I want to say on that, because I realize after that, the remiss not to mention it is uh, a sign of positivity. Uh, New York has just begun its first safe injection sites. Uh, oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, in, in Washington Heights and, and East Harlem. And for people who don't know what that is, the idea there is, you know, you have a specific building where um, injections for heroin and such are uh, allowed. Um, they're sort of monitored and supervised so that if somebody looks like they're ODing, they can be revived. You can also make sure people are using clean needles. You can give people information about how to how to um, beat their addiction if that's something they're trying to do, um, and with the uh, Sam Rivera is the director of uh, one of these programs, and I got the chance to speak with him. He was actually one of our, our uh, guests at Day of Empathy, and they have saved. They've been open since last fall, and in that time, they have saved over 100 people from overdoses. Wow! So you know, we talk about you know 
helping people. I mean, this is literally the difference between life and death, right? Uh, is one facility has saved more than a hundred people's lives in far less than a year. Um, it just goes to show that like having humanity and compassion, um, is good policy, right? Like we're saving people's lives, um, in, in this process. And so, um, I think I'm hopeful that that continues to spread across the United States. It's uh, as with most good things already exist in certain places abroad, but in the United States, you know, I hope it continues to be a trend and a way that we, again, get past the sort of juvenile stigma of the war on drugs and get to like a serious health and science-based policy. More good news. I love it. Yeah. So you think this with this, uh, e this, uh, e equal act could be a few weeks away. Well, we'll see. I, I definitely, that, I'm wishing that into existence, but we have the votes and right. I was yeah. going to say, if you look at the numbers, 11 Republicans, like you've got it. We have, yeah, we have the votes and that's 11 Republican sponsors. I mean, there's other Republicans who, true. who would even vote yes, but you know, pu putting your name on a bill is a big deal. And we have 11 Huge. Republicans who have already done that. So yeah, if it were up to me, if I were Senate majority leader, it would be on the floor already, but you know, I'm not, I'm just an advocate. So we're going to be really pushing for that to happen in the next few weeks. Um, and, uh, so, so certainly people who are interested in getting involved with that or following that fight can, you know, uh, look up our organization and, and see how they can get involved. Yeah. I guess as we begin to wrap up here, like what are, I can't imagine anyone listening to this conversation and not wanting to do something, whether it's just learn more about dream core, learn more about you, whatever, even if they don't get involved financially volunteering or otherwise, but yeah, give us the lay of the land, like what's coming, uh, for, you and for Dream Court Justice, uh, how can people get involved? Yeah, what are the ways people can get involved? Because um, yeah, you might like you're over the criminal justice stuff, but there's other there's other the tech stuff and otherwise. Um, yeah, give us a picture of what people can do if they want to uh, follow up after this and do something. Absolutely. Well, if somebody is interested in the criminal justice piece of it, um, yeah, they should go to our website, dreamcore.org and um, sign up to join the Empathy Network. And you can sign up as somebody who's a directly impacted person. You can sign up as an ally. Um, and there's different ways that we can plug you into our work. In particular, if you are uh, formerly incarcerated, we just put out um, the, the application for our uh, advocacy training program, which I love. It's a three-month training program in the summer that really teaches you all of the X's and O's of how to be an effective advocate, pass legislation, public speaking. It's free. Uh, so it, applications are open uh, for the next few weeks. So okay. certainly if you're formally incarcerated, that's really exciting opportunity. But even if you're not, you know, sign up for the Empathy Network. There's always space for allies in the movement. Um, if you're interested in some of our other work, uh, climate change, green jobs, you know, you should look up the work of Green for All. They're doing exciting work, particularly across the South. They're also um, doing a lot of work in that region of the country. Um, and then, you know, if you're interested in trying to, if you're a black and brown person who's trying to get, you're either in the tech industry or trying to get into the tech industry, we have job training pipelines. We also have different ways to, to be connected to those networks. There's an event called Black Future Weekend coming up in Miami. That's going to be very fun and exciting. And it's, it's, it's a, I went last year. It's basically a con convention of the leading, um, black thinkers and sort of futurism and technology and how we can use the power of technology to actually help communities who have been left behind when technology is often used to widen the gap of income inequality in this country. So a lot of cool stuff to check out. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, so I, I think people can can check that out all out on our site, or we're on all the social media platforms as well. People can follow me on Twitter too, just at Janos Martin. I will link to all that for sure. Um, I've never asked this question this way, but it makes sense since we're a few blocks from Times Square, one of my favorite slash least favorite parts about New York. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was to come to you and say, Janos, I'm going to buy you a billboard in mm. Times Square for a day and it's paid for, tell me what you want on it, right? We have in Times Square, you have people that are New Yorkers that have been here for forever working. They're coming to and from work. You have volu- you have uh, volunteers. You have tourists from all over the world. And you have a chance to tell New Yorkers and non-New Yorkers alike one thing on a billboard for an entire day. Um, what would you put up there? I have a funny story about this. Uh, when, I, when we were in the Close Rikers campaign, we actually uh, did try to put up a billboard. Now, a little bit of backstory. Rikers Island is named for the Rikers family, a rich Dutch family. And there was a judge named Richard Rikers from that family who, uh, at a time when slavery was illegal in New York, but legal in the South, was part of this group called the Kidnapping Club that would literally scoop black men off the street and see if there was a bounty for them from Southern slave catchers. Oh my God. And then it's absolutely one of the horrific people in history. And so we got a picture of him and we're going to put it on a billboard with our closed Rikers colors and put it in Times Square and say, did you know Rikers Island was named for a slave catcher as a way to get people thinking? <laughs> and we had already paid for the space and the billboard company refused to do it. What? They said that it was, uh, it violated their controversial content policy uh, and would not allow it up there. So we ended up uh, putting it in like a different company allowed us to put it up in Harlem where think, I guess it's less controversial put in Harlem and Times Square. Who, who the heck knows? But we did end up putting like different, you know, um, stats and stuff up in Times Square. But I remember it being very frustrating because we we're all literally good to go. And then their lawyers came back and, and, and didn't let us do it. Does this billboard company know there's that <laughs> this story lives on just a few <laughs> miles away yeah. on Rikers Island? You know, a still functioning uh, medieval, yeah. as you said, torture place of torture. Like that's so wild. Yeah. So anyway, uh, crazy stuff, but, uh, yeah, so I would, you know, I would probably, uh, we work on so many things, but like, if you're talking about Times Square, heart of New York, I would still for up to me, you know, want to say something like, you know, did you know that the horrific Rikers Island jail is still operating in your name or something like that? Just to, cause that's always the part that I think was most effective in that campaign is making New Yorkers feel ownership and responsibility for the fact that this horrific place was happening as a New York City jail, which means you and I as New Yorkers are partially responsible for it. We're paying, yeah, we're literally paying for it. We're literally voting for it, um, you know, and uh, we're partially responsible for it. And I think- Every day that we're not campaigning against it, right? Like if we really wanted it gone, we should all be just rising up every single day, but we're not. And, that's and so thing. that makes us partially responsible. You're right. And that is the thing about uh, jails and, and definitely prisons, right? Most New York prisons are in remote parts of upstate New York, out of sight, out of mind. And it's better for government and and, and better for people who who believe in this, this prison system for that to be the case because then people don't have to think about it, right? And I think the more we can remind people that um, – you know, they're complicit in the system unless they're working to change it, like you were just saying. Um, I think that's that would be a good use of a billboard. I totally agree. This has been super helpful. 
um, I've been encouraged. I've been helped. I've been challenged. I know those listening will feel the same way, or I hope so, rather. So thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Coming from meetings on your way to an event here in Midtown, stopped here for an hour and a half. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Janos and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>